Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. I am H.J. Conrad, here with my intrepid co-host, Ali Matu. Hello, Ali. Hey, Conrad, we're here for episode 60, and you know what? It's not just you and me on this p- epic podcast. Wait, it isn't? It isn't? Are you serious? No, no behind <laughs> this magical curtain right over here is friend of the show, Lowen Baumgarten. Lowen, welcome to the show. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Thanks for having me, uh, Ali, Conrad. I am so excited. This is awesome. We've been wanting to have you on this for a really long time, and I can't think of a better topic. So Yeah. Well, I'm think very excited to be here. You're a self-described policy wonk and a uh, a government nerd. Um, you're nerdy about a lot of things, but you're very much nerdy about this topic. What are we talking about today, Conrad? Today we are talking about House of Cards Series 3 or Season 3 if you're in the U.S., um, I suppose. And House of Cards, as everybody may know, has been this runaway hit on Netflix and they have released all three seasons. Uh, did they release the first season all at once as well? All yeah. yeah, yeah. So each every season, yes, because it's all been a binge watching frenzy. So every season gets dropped. You can watch it as much as you want, and it features uh, the wonderful Kevin Spacey as Frank Underwood and uh, Robin Wright as Claire Underwood. So that'll um, be it's got we've got a lot to talk about with yeah. this season and we're going to be debating uh house of cards versus another runaway political hit the west wing in our crossover chamber and what's in our top five today top five today our top five anti-heroes and as i was just discussing with lowen and just before we began, I think that my top five or the enjoyment I had in creating my top five might say something about me <laughs> because <laughs> I, apparently I really like antiheroes. So it was very hard for me to narrow down my list. So I don't very know if you. Very hard to narrow down. I don't know if you had trouble, gentlemen. But oh man, I, I had trouble. Lo and you and I were texting about this earlier in the day. We're like, how how do we limit it to only five? <laughs> yeah, I started making my list days ago, and up until hours before joining you, I was having trouble narrowing it down. Mm. So before we get there, we got to dive into our discussion of House of Cards. Now, this, as Conrad was saying, is a big hit. Um, House of Cards is based on a sort of based on this uh, BBC miniseries of the same name that came out a long time ago. And those are both based upon a novel by Michael Dobbs. So um, I got to ask you guys both getting started. Were you fans of this show? Um. Of the original or of, the... Of series... Yeah, like, have you seen the original and uh, were you fans uh, from season one and two? Um, I did not see the original until after I saw the, the would you call it a remake or reboot? Probably reboot more, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a reboot. Because they, they redid a lot of things. And then I watched a few, uh, like, just a couple of the British version of it and decided I couldn't go on with it. Uh, so. It's a little '90s at this point, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you combine that with the Britishness of it, and it's uh, it's hard to to keep your attention going for that, right? Um, but I definitely was a fan of the first season of House of Cards, without question. And I liked season two, but it's you know it didn't it didn't quite get me as hooked as the first season. And then we'll talk about season three after I hear what you two think. All right. Lowen, were you a fan of the show? 
Well, yeah, I definitely, as soon as it came out, season one, I, I, I at first tried to keep my distance. Unlike you, Ali, as you know, I am not an early adopter. So I like to <laughs> look sideways at things first. And so I, I mean, but then I could only keep away for maybe three days. And then I binge watched the entire first season over the course of, <laughs> I don't know, 48 hours or something, uh, and loved it. Uh, and, uh, Season two, I really was a bit more disappointed with, uh, and so I went into season three not really knowing how I would how I would li- like it. I, uh, to your question, I have never seen the British one. I know it exists. I know the Kevin Spacey ver- American version is sort of adopted off the, a British version, but I, I have not tried it yet. Yeah, the, the the episodes are someone's just throwing a bunch of them on YouTube, so you can check them out there. But um, I really started watching this show, season one of uh, the Kevin Spacey remake, House of Cards, uh, because of you, Lowen. You're you sent me a text one day, probably after you binge watched this, um, in your in your state of delirium from being up for twelve hours sta- straight, um, and you said, oh, "Have you seen this? It's it's like an evil mirror universe of a uh, version of the." West Wing. Yeah. And I always, I love that description. And I was like, huh, well, I've been rewatching the West Wing because now it's on Netflix. And uh, uh, it's kind of, you know, a little too optimistic here. Maybe I'll check this out. And, and that's where I got hooked. And much like the two of you loved season one, season two still gave me enough to get going, uh, to get into it. And we'll get into season three. So um, with that, sh- uh, shall we do a short non-spoiler review of season three this yeah, is I think it, we can cover that quickly yeah so to to remind everyone you know season two was really about the journey of frank underwood from secretary of state to becoming the vice president season two was really about his rise from vice president to becoming president season three promised to see um to see underwood enter the oval office and the consequences of that the bbc house of cards only went to season three and wrapped uh, wrapped up. We didn't know what to expect. Ladies and gentlemen, what did you think? Um, well, I liked it better than the second season. And it reminded me of some things that I liked about the show. But there are points of it that just felt like, and, and as I confess to you too, I, I did not watch this in its entirety. I skipped around and then ended up watching the end finally. I probably watched about two-thirds of it. Wow. Um, and part of this is because it was, um, you know, I think with a show like this, I probably shouldn't be binge-watching it. I think that I need to take it in, and it, it wasn't grabbing me at the end of each episode, making me want to watch the next one. And so I think I would have had better luck if I had spread this out a little bit more. Huh. Um, so it's and honestly, this is not my usual behavior. So I generally <laughs> am. I am a terrible binge watcher and I'll stay up all if I'm really hooked on something. I'll want to stay up all night. Uh, sadly, I I have a studio apartment and um and Bill is not on board with that kind of behavior. So, <laughs> <laughs> so even with the headphones. So I can't probably thankfully for my health and and my sleeping habits cannot do that but it surprised me that that was my reaction to this especially since with the first series I was totally I've watched that I think I watched that in a day I I was like I need to finish watching this so yeah 
So I think that part of it had to do maybe with the time crunch and maybe if I had had more leisure time, it was a pretty busy couple weeks. Um, maybe I would have felt differently, but that's sort of where I came out on it. And so... So admitted- you really weren't hooked episode no. to episode. And no. that is a problem with this show. If you, it just- if, you if it doesn't hook you... It's you're not going to stream and the next it, episode. To me, it felt a little bit. I liked it better. I definitely liked it better than the second season. But there was a lot. Uh, there were a lot of moments while I was watching this that I kept feeling like it was more of the same. Mm. So I will leave that there because I know you two had different feelings, and I want to hear why. Lowen, what's your what, what were your non spoilery thoughts on season three? Yeah, I don't know if I had a different feeling. I, I had a slightly different experience in that I did watch the whole thing, but I actually agree with everything you said, Conrad. I was hooked, unable to stop watching season one. Season, I thought, and season two I watched all the way through, but I wasn't extremely impressed. I thought season three was better than season two. I agree there. Uh, a lot of critics criticize season two for having very weak adversaries and I think you know without getting into spoilers they did a little bit better job there in season three um and but no I um I thought at times it was a chore to get through season three this last season season three and it did get very slow and specific you know sometimes Ali you ask for like a non-spoiler review or recommendation and if I had to give one, I, I would say, you know, watch it. You know, if you if you watched The West Wing, if you watched House of Cards already, yes, watch season three. But be aware that there are almost moments when the show is actively trying to alienate you as an audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, with that being said, I... I I agree and completely disagree with you both. Hmm. Um, so there, there was one. That's as- impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved one specific aspect of this show that everyone else seems of the season that everyone else seems to not really like, and that is. Uh, in the main counterpoint that we had to Frank Underwood, I finally thought we had an individual who was an antagonist to this uh, person who um, was truly an equal. We saw some of that in season two with uh, – what's his name? The, uh, the rich dude. Um, Raymond Tusk. Raymond Tusk. We saw a little bit, bit of that, but it felt very much – uh, like two siblings were kind of fighting. That's kind of what it felt like. It didn't really seem like a true adversary. And with, uh, without getting into spoilers, there is one key individual who I felt like it was a great adversary. And I, I just cherished those scenes. I, I love them. However, the show takes some pretty radical departures, I felt like, from the formula of what makes House of Cards work. I think this is a evil nightmare fantasy. And I thought actually that this was the weakest season because it doesn't really live up to the premise of the show. This isn't a West Wing. This is this is kind of like a, a tyrant coming into power. 
And now, as season three began, we had this tyrant achieving the state of power, and he's I felt like he was no longer really a tyrant. So that and they took some other departures in developing some characters that I wasn't really interested in or invested in. Um, and I thought the whole middle of the season was boring. Um, but the parts that I liked, I actually really liked a lot. So hmm. would I recommend this to people starting out who haven't heard of it? Absolutely not. Go watch season one. If you get hooked on season one, then I guess you have to finish it. But I enjoyed season one and two much better than this one. All right. Well, that's fair. Are we able to go into now the spoilery parts? Oh, let yeah, us enter the spoiler house of cards. Um Lowen, you are our guest of honor. I'm going to let you get started on our spoiler discussion. Um, where do we go in exploring this vast house of cards? <laughs> well, I, I kind of think where you were just teasing with whether or not two, the two things you just teased are really worth talking about. One is, does house of cards work when it's kind of not in motion, you know, the for season one and two is this story of desperately striving to attain power. And mm. season three seems to be, like you said, it seems to make some very marked, very conscious de departures from the, the formula that works so well in season one and kind of worked in season two. Uh, and those departures all seem to be coming back to this underline this point that after striving so hard to attain power, Frank Underwood find, and Claire Underwood find absolutely no fun in wielding power. It's, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a great, you know, little revelation to have, but I don't know if we need to be beaten over the head with it time and time again, which I think made it, I called alienating the audience, Ali, you called boring and I called I called skipping episodes <laughs> because it was that it was that bad um and it was it's exactly that point I feel like they were standing in place a lot and because there was no I don't want to call it a carrot but that's kind of what it was in season one and two where he has this quest for power. How's he going to get there? What are the obstacles in his way? How far is he actually willing to go? And, you know, all the, all the mechanisms that he has in place that the audience gets clued into. Sometimes, you know, especially in season one, I felt this was the case, was that we didn't fully know everything that was going on, although we knew a lot of pieces of it. And so when they unveiled a lot of his master plan, so to speak... Um, it was such a just a fantastic revelation, and I feel like that's why the first season had such a kick. And they did a bit of that in the second season, but it it's almost like diminishing returns as you continue through the seasons. And once you actually get that power, again, as as Loan so so pointedly noticed, um, it is interesting to see that they're not happy. But I don't know that there's enough drama surrounding that to fill the season. At least there wasn't for me. Well, and I don't think it has to necessarily be the quest for power that keeps the show going. I, I think mm. it it is the extent how he wields power that that is so interesting and how he his relationship with Zoe was really interesting in, in season one. And the fact that they that he kills Zoe. 
is well, well one he of, kills everybody <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of you know. until you get to season three <sighs> no and this is the thing um i really liked uh, new republic's uh comments about this they said uh he should have been murdering journalists and having lots of weird sex he should have burned <laughs> dc to the ground raymond's <laughs> test body should have been found on the steps of the white house and some sort of emergency law should have been declared giving him absolute power in perpe- in uh in a word I am not pronouncing. That, what, what I loved so much about season one and two are all the crazy things he did in his love and quest for power. He's got the power now. Let's see him flex it. Let's not see him spend all these episodes going on and on about America works. <laughs> That's not what this show is about. I felt like we'll talk about this when we get to the crossover. I think it really became, it, it had some West wing envy and it started to get into these policy debates and it's not a show that does that well at all some of the moments that i actually like in terms of power is uh the cabinet room i thought those scenes were were very delicious how he was treating the different secretaries and how he was using uh, uh groupthink to its extreme preventing any type of dissenting voice firing people who disagree with him and uh, that's how we get a lot of these weird decisions that's how we got the bay of pigs disaster is we have a uh, individual in power and there isn't really anyone dissenting against them it's very dangerous form of leadership i wanted to see more of that and less of a discussion on america works and entitlements yeah so uh ali you know you quoted uh one review and that was a really good point about how if it had followed the same sort of trajectory and formula as the first two seasons you're right he he should basically be staging a coup Uh, one quote that i want to read from grantland that kind of dovetails to what you just said is House of Cards' sudden pivot into wonkery is as clumsy as it is bizarre. <laughs> so, so yes, they do kind of start trying to play West Wing. But the differences are not just that they're not having fun, because everyone in Sorkin world is having so much fun being so smart, right? Oh, it's so nerding out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're pointedly not having fun. But they're also – I think the audience, you know – Conrad, you, me, the audience, uh, Ali, we got bored because Frank and Claire were bored. There are moments when Frank is walking around the empty residence, playing video games, polishing 12 pairs of shoes. He's the president (laughs) of the United States. He's trying to hold claw onto power by any means necessary, and he's got absolutely nothing to do. (laughs) Well, and And, this could have been... Just one more thing. And it is just amazingly... Empty. There is nobody there. There's never any diplomatic function to go to. There's never any photo op. It's just him and Claire on their cell phones as if there's only two people who would ever be banging around the White House. Yeah. Yeah. And for a moment, I I don't know if you two felt this, but for a moment, I thought they were doing a high level commentary on on power and how much power the executive branch in the United States actually has and how much can a president act without the will and support of his or her political party, of Congress, and how that relates to the third branch, the uh, judicial branch. That 
really confused me because I thought that's the direction they were going and maybe they were going to make some commentary on Obama. Um, but then I was thinking, wait, but that's not the show that I've I've come to know in, over the past two seasons. And then I was like, oh, no, that's not the, what they're doing because this whole plot line is really bad and boring. And no, you're right. I think that's what they were doing in yeah. some ways. I just don't think they did it well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, that- the last thing you were going to say. No, that I mean, you're right. No, it, it was just boring. And so this kind of gets to the thing I really liked about this season. Okay. Uh, the times when it was very exciting to me were um, pretty much every scene with him and the Russian prime minister. Uh. Uh, I ate those scenes up because I thought finally – now, he, he was this sort of extreme Putin-type character. Maybe mm-hmm. not so extreme, depending on who you're talking to. But what what I really enjoyed about those scenes is I felt like finally we have an antagonist, a true equal to Frank Underwood, another individual who craves power so much and has rationalized it in his head um, and has done a lot of – a lot of weird things, and who Frank Underwood seems to be in many ways powerless against. Uh, this Russian prime minister sees through his his uh, plots, his plans, his schemes, and wants no part of it. Those scenes were really well done, I thought. And, and as you see him travel to Russia and you see those wonderful, beautiful sets that were full of so many more people at, at times, and when you saw the state dinner, mm. that is where I felt like the show was really working. It felt alive. It felt like we actually had motion in, in this show, in the larger story. And I thought Frank was challenged in a way in which a president would be someone who's craved power and now is finding themselves powerless against this other individual i love those moments i don't think there were enough of those moments (laughs) (laughs) Um, i still liked i mean one of the most interesting things throughout this series to me has been the relationship between uh frank and claire mm -hmm. and all the the different things that that explores and and their dynamics and when you see one of them betray the other and then it turns it into something else entirely and that's been very interesting to watch and even in this I just felt like it was kind of tired and a lot of it to me didn't make sense in the direction that they decided to go I didn't fully buy uh, the the crisis of faith or the crisis of conscience that Claire somehow seemed to have so you're talking um, about the last few episodes of the yeah, season. Yeah, I'm still, I guess, I'm still thinking we're doing non-spoilers, but I guess we are spoiling it. No, spoil away, <laughs> um, Conrad. Let but, the, uh, protester. Right, and it's just sort of like, I don't really, we have seen her have moments, what you think is some empathy or sympathy or whatever, but it always turns in, out to be something else. Self-serving. Um, Right. And and in this case, I just part of it didn't it didn't ring true to me at all. I don't. And maybe it would have if we had seen some sort of growth with her character. It it just didn't it didn't feel right to me. And it felt very lazy. Um, And I think that that's part of why I just really didn't enjoy it that much is because I thought, wow, you took this really amazing thing. She's one of the most interesting female characters that we, I think we've ever seen on television Mm. in terms of her level of power and 
her thought process. I mean, she she does some incredible things during the course of this series, and I just feel like they wasted her in this, and I feel like they wasted the whole relationship, especially how they wrapped it up at the in the finale. So I had interesting experience watching that where it was working for me as I was watching those episodes. And I think it largely worked not because of the writing and not because of the story, but because of the amazing abilities of Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey. And Robin uh, Wright also directed um, a couple episodes. And one of them was a, was a heavy Claire episode and did the David Fincher dark, everyone's in shadow style very well. The, the, the kind of trademark that the show's come to be known for. Um, what worked for me was their amazing ability to act, and and oh, they're Robin incredible. Wright, they're incredible, yeah, and they're incredible her, her, together. Her so. ability to go from cold, detached, calculating to warm, sympathetic, and loving in the bat of an eye is it's fascinating. Ter- it's terrifying, it and that's what makes it so. That's what makes it so amazing. Um, but but as you get removed from those episodes and you start to reflect on them, you're absolutely right, Conrad. It's out of character that uh, this individual who uh, Frank Underwood has hired to write this book, hearing that story puts these things into in into a place combined with talking to the that other individual in Iowa that other people's opinions are what finally would break Claire's back right. and would would cause her to leave that is absolutely against everything these characters have become um, over the past couple of seasons. They don't care about what and, other people think. They want fact, to pursue well, their goals. In fact, while I was watching those specific moments, I thought that there must be some other reveal or plan in her head. Yeah. Right? Like, like that's what I thought. And then when that turned out not to be the case, or at least, you know, it, I was really... I. I don't want to say I felt cheated, but I kind of did. <laughs> so, because yeah. I, yeah, so I just, yeah, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, when I, think when, I think when you had Claire at the, um, what was it, the GDC or the G, the Global Water, or whatever, at her nonprofit. <laughs> Um, you the know, Global her, Good Water Organization. <laughs> Global Good Water. Lo and her in- incredibly well-funded nonprofit. If you look at the the interiors of their building, were they like any nonprofit you're used to from uh, DC? Well, interiors in House of Cards are again. It's very hard to talk about the show without talking about West Wing. But the interiors are just so cold and flat and empty and they look like art galleries. Yeah, and beautifully stylized and (laughs) costal. They are not dingy and they also have free cappuccino. So that's just not happening in a non-profit. It just isn't. No, or the government, you know. Right. Uh, Yeah, the interior, you know, you really have to then watch West Wing and see the stacks of paper and binders on people's desks, right? Um, So So, you were saying when, when she was at her non-profit. I think their interests were, and their goals were not aligned perfectly. And so they could double cross each other because as in season one, Frank really wanted to pass this uh, bill and Claire ended up sabotaging the bill and betraying Frank. And, and that worked because she had this motive of her own. True. And and here, I think I agree, Conrad. I didn't think about it. I did not occur to me. Um, I just, it didn't feel right watching it, but I didn't realize that, yeah, her being suckered by that gay rights protester in Russia hanging himself, that she 
you know, she wouldn't just be a bleeding heart in that moment, <laughs> you know, in, on the world stage, just because it felt like the right thing to do. And then right. she wouldn't be moved by the book. I, um, it, is, it actually is a moment that made me question whether that was a, a sexist treatment of that character. Mm-hmm. If, it, you know, it's that she's not strong enough to stay convicted to the political motivations in this moment um, and and hold her feelings in. I, I don't know if it was or not, but that thought did cross my mind because it was so inconsistent with yeah. that character. I will say one thing. Um, I'm going to quote AV Club here uh, when they say, uh, this is Scott Von uh, Doviak, who said, when lighthearted from giving blood, Claire confesses to Yates that she agreed to give Flank, uh, Frank seven years when they married and reconsiders every seven years. I'm pretty sure this means she's a Vulcan. She might, she might be. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, she acts like one. Uh, yeah, I, I think the problem with season three is that it ve- it relies very heavily on this central relationship. You're right. The, uh, the adversaries for Frank Underwood in season two sucked. Raymond mm-hmm. Tusk sucked. The president sucked. Oh, the president was horrible. He was... Uh, and Boring. so, finally to have... Um, Cashew was okay though. Cashew was also awesome, and Cashew came back, kind but of not, very but briefly. not, but not long enough. Come on, no. man! Like Look, you can't. Brief. Well, that that speaks to the boringness. Um, yeah. In the relation, like Cashew became this. For those of you who don't know, Cashew's the <laughs> guinea pig right. that our hacker Snowden type character has um, in season two, who became like a big giant internet meme. <laughs> like if I was a producer of the show, I would put Cashew in like in lots of random places, and that would really increase the popularity of the show. The um, Lowen, I know I'm interrupting you here, but. Uh, Wait, I was going to say something else, but I get distracted by Cashew. Sorry. Um, so that's you go what, for That's it. what Cashew does, Ali. <laughs> that's what Cashew does. He distracts you. So when I read, uh, I forget whether it was AV Club or whatever, but when I read one review, they pointed out that this show, this seer, season, you didn't realize it until the final episode, but it was really all about two relationships, Frank and Claire, and then um, Frank and... Uh, his main yeah. aide, who's Doug, who spends yeah. the whole time recuperating. Ugh. And so we haven't talked yet. We've talked about uh, Petrov, the, Putin, the Putin-esque adversary. We haven't talked about Dunbar, and we haven't talked about Doug. I, I we think did talk about we... Cashew, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so... I, think Doug, I think Doug is a good character to chat about. Um, because I also, I also have some problems about Doug and the thing about Doug is that he's an intriguing character. He's been an interesting character since the beginning because you're always wanting to know, you know, what is motivating him and, and you want to see what's going on with him. And I kind of thought that they were finally going to go into some of that in this and they didn't really. And he's just kind of like. I don't know. I feel like it's an unresolved character that they didn't do enough with, but he had a ton of potential. 
I don't think they knew what to do because you from the first episode of the season, it's a it's a Doug episode. Right. And I thought this would be a really interesting uh, season because it, it was saying, look, folks, we are we are going to be exploring this individual. They bring his brother onto a, a few episodes. We start to learn a little bit more about his relationship and his lack of relationships with other people and his relationship to Frank Underwood. But here's the thing. They don't. They plant these seeds and then they don't do anything with them. Um, of course, as the resident psychologist. I was, I was like really hoping he'd turn out to be Dexter. I mean. <laughs> I, could, I could see that. Be well, here's crossover. the thing is they do one thing with Doug. They, they, and this is probably a pacing problem with binge watching is the very first episode has probably 36 minutes of Doug no dialogue, no music, silently yeah. banging around the house, being injured, feeling sorry for himself, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that, again, is what I was referring to in alienating viewers, is it's just really boring and suffering to watch Doug get punished and suffer. And, and, um, and so then you build up this whole thing with him searching for racial falling off the wagon, getting back on the wagon, his brother coming, caring for him. Is he going to be redeemed? Is he not going to be redeemed? And then... All that builds up to just one moment in the very final episode where you think he's going to let Rachel go and then he kills her. Yeah. Uh, And what does that tell us about this character? It just tells us that even though he he lied to him, his brother (laughs) and himself, and he thought that he could give up and walk away from Frank Underwood, he can't walk away from Frank Underwood. That's what. I mean, does it? Does it really though? Because it it really. yeah. Okay, maybe. Maybe it tells us that. <laughs> but it also could tell us, no, he had this traumatic brain injury. He's going through this this recovery, and he's exactly the same person he was before. He can do people into doing whatever he needs to do to take care of Frank Underwood's business. Uh, I didn't I know that's supposed to be this massive, dramatic, climactic moment in that season finale, but it just I kind of just shrugged my shoulders. I was like, all right, so I invested in all these episodes to see this character's arc, and nothing's really changed. You combine that with how dumb it is that the that this individual who is a well-known staffer, um, who is now the chief of staff, sure, it maybe hasn't been announced, is driving around the country, buying this murder van, uh, <laughs> going overseas. Murder uh, van. <laughs> murder van. That was like such that. a murder van. Man, I have to uh, say, though, he is, he is such a weird character and he's so cold and so strange and manipulative and not interesting without frank underwood no no he is not interesting he's not interesting by himself at all and it was as lowman said it was so tedious to watch i i was just like i would like to know more interesting stuff about this character but this is not it and you know it it bothered me that this guy has a traumatic brain injury and and they and one of the symptoms of traumatic brain injury can depending on the location of the injury can be massive fluctuations in emotions and i don't really think we saw that kind of play out i think where he ends in the season is where he began in the season mm-hmm. and the the that's one of the main shifts that happened in this season of house of cards they try to invest a lot in the other characters. We saw this with Remy, with Jackie Sharp, with Heather Dunbar, with Seth, uh, with Seth Grayson. Um, we didn't really see that too much with uh, his Secret Service agent, who I'm blanking on. Beecham. 
Meacham. But, uh, but none of these characters are interesting enough for me to care that they invested this time in them. Am I, I am I alone on that? I mean, I... I, I disagree know. with you with two characters, Jackie Sharp and Jackie, Heather Dunbar. Jackie's, yeah, Jackie's a little bit different, I guess. But and that's where the season ends in an interesting way. It seems like Frank Underwood's Achilles heel are women. That he, the the women he has tried to manipulate all have sort of one upped him in some way. Whether it's Claire at the end, I I know motivations are questionable here, but Jackie Sharp and Heather Dunbar, um, that was interesting. But again. The other characters, as you were mentioning, Conrad, that were tried to be developed, especially Remy, um, just I was not interested. Clumsy way they shoved in that, like you know, racial element, racial profiling, like police brutality, you know, to try and be ripped from the headlines relevant. That was super clumsy. It really seemed like House of Cards was trying that a lot. Look, they had a Colbert moment (laughs) and the show's over. Colbert's gone. This is not happening anymore. There was another moment. um, They had the Colbert moment. Oh, the smuggled Cuban cigars. That's not relevant anymore either. We're formalizing relationship with with Cuba. I I thought there was a, you know, Gavin was turned into much more of a Snowden type of individual. It just felt like they they were trying really hard to squeeze in some social commentary. And I'm thinking, I'm scratching my head thinking, this is not the show I signed up for. I want more uh, murder van and I want more uh, weird sex and that rowing machine that makes me freaked out. And I want to see Raymond Tuss, you know, like revenge being enacted on. I I will say that is that each of those characters that had the potential to be interesting and have conflict and tension came down to one decision in the last episode. It was Dunbar deciding being this clean, squeaky clean Uh, politician who decides to use the diary. Boom. And then uh, Doug deciding to murder Rachel and Claire deciding to leave Frank. The problem with the episode is there is interesting drama, in my opinion, going on with each of those characters. It just all happens in the finale. And the lead up to that is all like it's almost all style and surface. I did like the debate. Uh, I will say seeing Jackie betray not betray but um enact underwood's advice and then seeing underwood betray her was fantastic i really enjoyed that especially with a comment about you know jackie saying where do you send your kids you send them to private school why and then underwood doing the exact same thing that was great i did enjoy that one a lot um it just uh it's not much. It's not not enough going on. Not enough of that fun. Um, I'll also say there was not much breaking the fourth wall this season. No, and it wasn't as part. And that's part of why it wasn't as much fun because that was part of the the fun of the first season entirely. Because you never knew when he was going to do it, and yeah. then and then it was just <laughs> this fantastic thing. And they did do it in the second series too, but not not. I didn't feel like it was as successful as in the first. Although there was one moment with breaking the fourth wall where they did get a little meta uh, where he is, he's trying to convince for the second time, he's trying to convince the Supreme Court justice to retire and step down. 
and he breaks the fourth wall and talks to us, the audience, about, can I crush this man and destroy him? <laughs> no. And the justice who has Alzheimer's is like, what? What did you say? That's kind <laughs> of, it, that was kind of awesome. And it's kind of like that thing where, uh, you know, only children and the mentally disabled can yeah. see angels or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, can see ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Ghosts, yeah. Um, so that that was kind of an interesting little moment. But I, I I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting really excited and itchy to get into the crossover chamber. I, I was about to just say that I, I, one last thing I wanted to mention, um, which is fascinating to me, Conrad um, and Lowen, you both were talking about how the streaming effect um, it didn't really make you want to watch the next episode. Here, uh, the only reason I think I finished all oh, the two reasons one is because I, unlike other super fans. <laughs> Our co-hosts do finish my homework and watch the whole season, um, but never read the book. Oh well, Lewin. <laughs> um, but yes, and uh, now I'm forgetting what I was going to. Oh yes, um, the only reason I, I continued to watch is I kept believing. Okay, just one more. Maybe it'll get interesting. Uh, okay, just one more. I want to see a little bit more of this. If this show was airing week to week, I would have become so bored that I would have been like, that episode was so bad, I'm not going to continue, really. But here mm-hmm. it was like, well, I, I, I kind of want to see how it ends. It's, you know, in just four more hours, I can do that. Um, so the streaming effect is what helped me to finish this show. Yeah. Well, I, I could definitely see that. I also, as I was watching this, I was thinking again about our many discussions uh, that you and I have had, Ali, about the way we view series here in the U.S. and whether we run them into the ground. And I know three series is yeah. not that many, but I feel, honestly, I feel like they could have ended House of Cards at the end of the first season and just left it alone. And it would have been this amazing triumph. I know that we can't do that because they were so excited about how successful it was. And I thought you were going to say we can't do that because we're America. <laughs> well, that too. But I, I mean, I knew Netflix couldn't do it because this was their this was their baby. This is their this is what what launched a lot of these different types of shows. And yeah. they people were a little bit like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be successful or whatever. And then it was monumentally successful. So they were. Of course, very excited about it. And I, and people do want to see what happened to the characters, and I understand that. But part of me, I just feel like this third season, I don't know that I would watch a fourth. So, mm. you know, it's it's now the second season and now the third season. I'm just kind of like, okay, I think I'm done. So maybe it has something to do with that. But in any I case... I think what I, I would wait to see the reviews. And mm. and then I would decide whether or not to invest 12 hours of my life into this show. <laughs> well, I will say that after the second season, until we talked about doing this for Nerd Hour, I wasn't really that excited to watch the third. So now well, well, I'll they've alienated you, me twice. Right. I, I, <laughs> Lowen, I felt the same thing. And then we talked about doing this and we felt like we should. And I was like, OK, now I have to watch it. And then look at how successful I was <laughs> in, in doing that. I was not. Um, On that note, why why don't we get out of this evil universe and enter a universe where we can bring optimism and uh, cynicism together? Why don't we venture into the infinite crossover chamber? Hey, I like it. Welcome you like that? That was like a subtle one. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. nice. Yeah. 
So, in the crossover chamber today, House of Carnes versus the West Wing, Conrad, what is our question this week? Our question this week is, which show is the better political drama? So this question was, uh, this crossover really is owned by our guest, Lowen Baumgarten. Lowen, this was inspired by your text message to me about uh, House of Cards being the evil universe version of the West Wing. And we all remember the West Wing as the great NBC show, which has won numerous accolades, uh, every award um, aired on NBC for seven seasons uh, straight through from September 1990. 99. Um, we always will connect this as one of Aaron Sorkin's best shows. Were you both fans of uh, West Wing when it was airing? Um, I actually, I watched some of West Wing. I watched the first season. And then it was one of those shows that was continually on. And I would catch pretty much the same episodes all the time. And um, so I didn't actually watch it in its entirety until probably a couple of years after it went off air. Now, did you stream it on Netflix when it appeared there or did um, you this DVD? May, I think this had to be DVD. I would like to say that I streamed it, but I don't think that I did. Yeah. Um, and I have watched it in its entirety a couple of times now. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly I like it. Um, but what about you, Lowen? Uh, I have the same, except I I did watch it pretty religiously. So I I, I don't know if your listeners know, but I, I am, as Ali says, a big political nerd. I, I went to school undergrad in Washington, D.C. I went to Georgetown because I wanted to be in politics and study politics. And at Georgetown, everybody's like that. And um, And so we would gather together at the dorms, I think the second season was on um, when I was a freshman in college. And be, this is, you know, the big nerds that we were. We would stay in on, you know, a Thursday night and uh, or Friday night, whenever it was on, and uh, gather in someone's dorm room and watch West Wing when it came on. As opposed to Monday night, Sloan, when you and I would gather and watch <laughs> Star Trek Enterprise and yes. talk on the cell phone about yeah. the episode. Somebody should have tapped me on the shoulder and offered me a plastic solo cup full of beer at some point <laughs> freshman year. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did. And like you, Conrad, I have rewatched it several times at this point. So I do really love the show. I love West Wing. I was probably least into it between the two of you as it was airing. I watched episodes here and there. And it was really when this appeared on uh, Netflix streaming that I got into the show. It was one of the first um, good shows that appeared on Netflix streaming in its entirety back around 2010. And I just kind of totally binged it. And I think I've watched it once and a half since then. So I I guess we all know what we're going to be voting for. Um, But so. Lots of interesting questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a lot that's been written about House of Cards versus West Wing. Often when we create an infinite crossover chamber, there's really not much stuff that's been already written or discussed about the things that we mash up. Um, but here, this is actually something that people really like to nerd out about. People have talked about let's, let's explore the generational effect. Let's explore how these shows reflect the era, the time, the political climate, the parties in power, all of that. And um, there's so many directions we could take this in. 
Um, where where do we pilot this crossover chamber first? I am going to let Lowen, if he doesn't mind, jump in and start this as he's our guest. Yeah, so I think there one area to start is the generational effect that what that especially especially because House of Cards does get very wonky or tries to get wonky in its third season is the issues the political issues they're dealing with and the type of politics that we're used to and that they're dramatizing. So West watching West Wing now 15 years later uh is very weird because it is so <laughs> 90s. There is it's so a li- 90s. There is a line where Bartlett says, we're not at war with anyone. There's another line where he says, yeah. uh, I don't know if I could send troops. I feel no you know, anger, hostility in my heart towards those foreign people. <laughs> you know, it's like, it is the sappiest, most, you know, uh, Francis Fukuyama's famous quote, you know, that, that, that the end of history, that at the Cold War we would all join hands and sing Kumbaya and that (laughs) they had to come up with these, you know, Cuba and Haiti and some fictional country were all collapsing and would need the U.S. to come and save them. So the fact that history, in fact, did not end, and now we've since been in two massively long wars and we have Islamic State and everything that's gone to excuse me, that's gone to hell across the globe, uh, that's um, pretty amazing just to see in terms of that. The other thing politically that's fun to watch when you go back and watch West Wing is uh, all the culture wars that they're constantly mm. fighting. And then to see House of Cards and how it's a very post-culture war show. Uh, the president really has maybe a 20-second hesitation about embracing and supporting a gay rights activist. Uh, There are very fluid, uh, across the Kinsey scale, uh, relationships Mm -hmm. on House of Cards. Uh, There's very, there's almost no, there there is the talk about abortion with whether or not Claire had the abortion in season one. Um, But all the other culture culture war issues are almost kind of gone, which reflects our current politics, I think, where because of the economic crisis and the two very long wars we've been fighting, the culture wars have kind of receded. So that, to me, is an interesting place to start, is just the generational effect. It is jarring in many ways to go back and watch West Wing. Uh, what, you know, Conrad, you and I were talking about Black Mirror a few, um, mm. a few episodes ago, and uh, I, we, we came out on different sides in that crossover chamber looking at Black Mirror versus Twilight Zone, and I was coming down in favor of Black Mirror, and you're, you kind of raised the point of will this show be remembered in uh, many years from now? And I, I responded, retorted by saying, it, this is how we're going to look back at Black Mirror and say this is what we were afraid of at this point of time, and um, this point in time. And I think West Wing is very similar, where it's this. Um, it's a bit it's of a time capsule. Of, it's a time capsule yes. to where we were, the issues we were dealing with, um, where the country was. And uh, it's this fictionalized por- portrayal of the well, Clinton administration. Well, and- that and interestingly enough, the the whole in the last season, the election. Um, and oh, yeah, where, this is and fascinating. It, and it's such a fascinating thing because this is before uh, before Obama got elected. 
Yeah. And it followed this candidate and they didn't think that they could go as far as having an African-American candidate. So they were like, it's going to be we're going to go with an Hispanic can- candidate to be the right. the one. And then this is going to be earth shattering. <laughs> and then to have like a couple of years, <laughs> you know, a few years later, seeing the Obama campaign and see Obama win and even watching. I don't know. Have you rewatched it at all? Either of you? I haven't made it up to the seventh season yet, but I I, I want to watch it for. I, this I've seen it reason. since the Obama election of two thousand eight. Yeah, but even watching the last season and watching the Jimmy Smith char- uh, character and uh, Jimmy Smith's and um, Alan Alda, Alan Alda, be it just even some of the things they go through in the campaign, really oddly and strangely mirror the Obama campaign quite a bit um, yeah. just even in some of the things that they say to the point where it it is a little creepy in some points <laughs> honestly it's it's um because they really did hit a lot of those issues spot on even some of the things that they were talking about during the election and you know i i know that there were certainly it, it's you you can read a lot into that and i do think that they had some great writers on the show and and there were ideas that this might happen so i'm sure it's not too much of a surprise but it is interesting to go back and watch it and see a lot of the similarities there but it was it felt almost like there was some some form of clairvoyance there to some extent well and the the alan alda character was uh, a little reminiscent of john mccain i mean there were different personalities but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but totally no totally one episode that sticks out for me is uh, from season one or two, and as often happens on the West Wing, an issue occurs. <laughs> and we, the, cam- the camera follows. This is one of the clear differences here, too. It's not about a core relationship. It is about all of these people on his staff. And the original idea was not even to have to have President Bartlett appear, you know, once per episode and very rarely. And then everyone loved him so much um, and we got a lot more of him. But there there was an episode about um, privacy and about Internet or about technology. Mm. And there's a moment, um, as often occurs, uh, where three or four individuals are debating this issue. And as that debate's playing out, I think it's Josh, Leo, and CJ maybe, or maybe Toby. I'm sure Toby was in there. Um, in fact, yeah, no, I think Toby was in there because there was someone who was very crabby, and I think that was <laughs> him. Um, but as they're having this debate, they're saying, this is the issue of the 21st century. This is what we're going to be struggling with. None of you see it, but this is the thing. We need to have a clear uh, precedent here. And if we're not strong on this issue, these pri- we're going to lose all these privacy rights. And I was watching that, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, they completely predicted this. And, of course, there could be some confirmation bias, and that stuff sticks out for me more. But what I... What I think is a great contribution of the West Wing is not only did it raise some of these issues for discussion, but it really makes you believe in the process. And here's where it becomes <laughs> fantasy land. It makes you believe way. in an idealized process. Yeah. It's sort yes. of like it's sort of how you would love politics and our government to actually work and to hope that there really are people that care that much and that are that smart. And right. even when they may get it wrong, at least that they're not hopefully having horribly evil intentions a la Frank Underwood. Um, 
So, yeah, from a, and I also just going back to a point Lowen made during when we were talking about House of Cards, you do it isn't boring to see the things happening that are related to government in the West Wing. It better not be because that's what the show's about. <laughs> um, and it does do well if Orton Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin leaves, it <laughs> yeah, uh, but it does do at least I felt up. In, in describing how certain laws are made and in certain obstacles that they run across um, in trying to curry favor um, and trying to get certain things passed. And then if this doesn't get passed and that affects a totally different bill. And there's, interesting enough, there's like a bit of a parallel. There's um, something that uh, the the first lady is trying to get passed and uh, is com- not yeah right and and there's there's some things that there's a lot of conflict going on because they are at odds with you with each other similar to to claire underwood and frank underwood in the first season and but it's so much more complex because you see the whole process that happens and and why it happens and i think that the West Wing did a really good job at describing those things in a, in a good and dramatic and entertaining way, as Ali said, creating these questions and points where you could have discussions about these different issues that were at that time very valid. Um, and I don't think that House of Cards is meant to be that necessarily. It's meant to and- be a drama, but I don't necessarily think that I don't think they're really trying too hard to be a political drama. Well, let me, I mean, let they me talk- are, but it isn't, you know, it isn't supposed to be an accurate, I hope it isn't an accurate portrayal of our <laughs> well, government. I don't think Biden's going around pushing people into the metro. I don't, no. I don't think that's happening. Okay, can I just say one thing? Go yeah. for it. Why couldn't they use a real DC metro? That was clearly not a DC <laughs> no, metro station. Not. Anyway, I, di- I digress. Anyway. Well, so that's why it's very hard for me to talk about House of Cards at all without referencing the West Wing. It, it, on its own, it's a much weaker show. And it, but in conversation, artistically, with the West Wing, it, it finally finds sort of a raison d'etre and a life, and a, you know, a life. Mm. Look at you all fancy and using French <laughs> words. <laughs> uh, the first French word spoken on Super Fantastic Weird Hour, ladies and gentlemen. Oui, oui. Awesome. Um, there... But, you know, there, there is something else I read you know, in Grantland that said um, one of the things you see in season three is that um, or in all of House of Cards is that politics is a dirty game that only the ignorant and the doomed play entirely within the rules. And that's a thing where, yes, West Wing is better at bringing up issues. It's better at showing the, how the sausage is made. Conrad, as you said, the process, the negotiations, the compromises, but it's much too, it's far, far too Pollyanna, (laughs) far too Pollyanna. And so that's why House of Cards needs to exist. Now, one huge weakness of House of Cards is that they are, they're not Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) They are, uh, they are much less facile with policy. That, so when they skew to being wonkish and about policy and about America works and entitlements and drone strikes and uh, peace in the Middle East, and when they start taking on the really, really big issues of our time, they can't explain 
without being very didactic. And mm-hmm. the tone becomes, you know, s- s- uh, Kevin Spacey's just writing on the whiteboard. This is how many do- cents per dollar we spend on Medicare yeah. every year. Yeah. But when Sorkin does the same thing, when Sorkin educates the audience, you love it. You eat it up. You yeah. know, you could agree with him. It could be really boring, dry stuff. It could be about an issue you previously did not care about. Uh, but all of In a fact, sudden- it always is. It's yeah. almost always things that are boring and that you didn't previously care about. But as you're saying, he makes you eat it up. Um, one of the great things that they talk about is the debt ceiling in the mm-hmm. West Wing. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's an issue that still continues to come up. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I never fully understood it until they described it on that show. (laughs) That was the first time I was finally like, oh, now I understand. Um, Which is terrible, which is terrible of me to say, and this is like many years ago, but it's, but he managed to do it in a way that you're like, it's entertaining and it's educational. So, so Lowen, I, I, I think you're absolutely right here. These two shows work together like matter and antimatter. I think they're they're kind of these uh, opposing forces to each other, and it makes me that's tipping my hat towards what's coming next, which is um, I, I think the West Wing is like Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, where whereas House of Cards is like a Terry Gilliam film. Um, oh, hmm. no, no, hold on, hold well, it's on. It's not as good, but it's... no, it's not as good. But what it, it's trying to do something that Terry Gilliam would do, which is more of a dystopian science True. fiction where it's using humor to point out these horrible things that yeah. people can do. It makes me think of Brazil, my, my favorite Terry so. Gilliam film. Um, now, it's not not as good. But um, when people ask me why do you love Star Trek so much and what makes it so unique, I often tell them, well, it's this optimistic vision of the future. It's one of the only optimistic science fiction films. And science fiction so often is social commentary and it's a warning. And Star Trek gives you more of a sense of what's possible. West Wing is a sense of what in an ideal world politics could look like if you're a democrat and it is also (laughs) um, house of cards the great episode of that is when uh, for a few circumstances somehow the speaker of the house who's a republican is uh, becomes the acting president it's played by john goodman i believe and he's such a character caricature of this horrid republican (laughs) individual and i was like oh come on sorry you could have you could have done this a little bit better well i was i was gonna like sorkin tell us how you really feel (laughs) yeah yeah i know with with a slobbering dog in the oval office yeah, um, right. But, you know, House of Cards is trying to do what Terry Gilliam does, where it is this like, well, let's let's take these situations to their logical extreme of w- the horrible things that people do in, in search of power. Um, it just doesn't do it as well through the course of the run of the show. In the West Wing, yes, it wasn't as great when Eric Sorkin left slash was fired, but it did regain itself towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe there's some hope we'll see that with uh, with House of Cards. I don't, I'm not too optimistic. One thing I wanted to ask you to with this is we're not alone here with House of Cards kind of taking this dystopian uh, route, whether it's Homeland, The Americans, Scandal, right. uh, or Veep with on, yeah. uh, on mm-hmm. HBO. 
there seems to be a theme here with what we're seeing with um, pop culture portrayals of American politics. And it's not a very positive one. Is this a reflection of how poorly we see American government at this time? Well, let me say that I think we, before we entered the crossover chamber, it was pretty obvious to the, the listening public how we were all going to vote. So, but... It, 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 to House of Cards credit, it does highlight in stark relief what the West Wing gets wrong. Mm. And, I, and like Ali, like you, I fully have made the Star Trek West Wing comparison before. They have mm. the same liberal optimism that gets that is fun sometimes, but gets cloying and naive if you get if you watch too much of it. And <laughs> like like Star Trek. Uh, with Star Trek's techno babble, you know, depolar- oh, yeah. depolarize the deflector shield. Yeah, inverse the tachyon beam. <laughs> right. Sorkin <laughs> has been accused of just liking the sound of intelligence and not actual yeah. intelligence, right? So I, I, they're very similar. Um, uh, but what the West Wing gets wrong is by veering into becoming sanctimonious and preachy about it. Um, and I would say that the two things that, you know, again, Sorkin's very good at preaching, so it's fun to to listen to him preach sometimes, but the two things the West Wing fundamentally gets wrong is A, being smart does not make you right, and B, and B, being right does not mean you win, and- that's, I think, why we need House of Cards is because the people who are wrong are always win in House of Cards. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and often it's the dumb people who end up being right or the people who are not in the know, you know. Who, who end and, up in front of a train. <laughs> or who end up in front of a train. And, and so it's, it's worth pointing out. I, I think House of Cards, again, just is... We, as Americans, have been through so much politically in the last 15 years with the economic crisis, the long recession, the two wars, terrorism. uh, Well, not just the the long recession caused by some some very interesting rules that nobody ever got punished for. Yeah. Um, and now continue to make money hand over fist. So well, it's, and, and let's extend this even so, further. So some, was, of the, some of the consequences of the ideas that played out from the 90s into the 2000s right. kind of led us to the situation where we are in now. Right. So yeah. I do, you know, I, I, I hear you, Lowen, because I think you're right that that aspect of House of Cards definitely reflects, I, I don't want to say it reflects complete reality, because of course it is a is a drama and they are very dramatic. <laughs> um, but I think, unfortunately, I think you see a lot more things in the headlines about politicians that are closer to House of Cards than they are to the West Wing. That brings us right back, um, thank you for that, Lowen, um, to the question in this crossover chamber, what's the better political drama? How are we defining that, folks? Because it, it, by your description, Lowen, I would say at this point in time, House of Cards might fit that bill. 
Uh, Did you I just was... switch us all around, Lowen? It could be. <laughs> well, you are Frank Underwood. You. <laughs> I would say, you know, I would kind of break that phrase apart. Political drama, right? Give, give one, give each show points for how they handle politics, and give each show points for how they handle drama. Now, we've all said at length in our spoiler review that we were pretty disappointed with the drama. In That's House true. of Cards yes. season three, House of Cards season one was a little bit more tense, had a lot more tension and more energy to it. But um, but I, I think in in terms of drama, West Wing, you know, clearly wins. Right. And in politics, it is. It's sort of about the lens you take. Now, if say the three of us may not be the most radically conservative people, but say you were a conservative and you were watching West Wing versus House of Cards, in West Wing, you have liberals being right, being smarter than cons- the, the whole point of season four, I think, is that Bartlett is the smartest man on earth, and he is this liberal dream who's therefore inherently smarter than any conservative opponent he could ever face. Uh, the, there's the governor from Florida, there's John Goodman's character. And so, and that is a, a constant conservative criticism of liberals is that. You're not smarter than us just because <laughs> we disagree. <laughs> um, now, there are things where, you know, if you come specific issues like climate change where, you know, people on the left might have science on their side. But that doesn't mean that on every, you know, that might be, that's only one issue. On uh, 98% of every other issue, uh, and there are plenty of issues where conservatives have science on their side. And, well, and there's plenty of times where liberals are uh, against vaccines. Yeah, that's, sure, that's exactly. Yeah. I, I live I live 10 minutes from the anti-vaxxer capital of the world in Marin County, the most liberal county in America. So I agree. I hope you um, got your teed up, my friend. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, and But then here you have House of Cards with Frank Underwood, a Democratic president, trying to take on entitlement reform and being fought by his own party, uh, pursuing drone strikes and making arguments that it's okay to murder American, murder and maim American citizens. And so I think there is this, you know, politically, House of Cards is, I would say, more self-aware if it's not as deftly and subtly... Um, harnessed and presented politics as West Wing. It just at least isn't sort of believing its own bullshit. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> so where do you come out then? Would you say it's a tie? No, it, uh, West Wing wins. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys hear that sound? Because that was the sound of Lowen dropping his mic. Uh. Uh, <laughs> um uh, here's where uh, this comes down to a very simple thing for me. Um, Lowen, I, I, I love your preference ranking right there of the, of politics versus drama. And, uh, it's, it's a far simpler argument in my head. Um, house of cards is essentially a show about, uh, two people and their relationship to each other. Um, uh, the West wing is a ensemble, uh, piece, which is about a group of people and how they work uh, together. Um, and I think just in terms of that uh, political drama and how those groups interact with each other, um, I'm giving it to West Wing. Well, I'm giving it to West Wing as well. And I'm not going to expand any further. <laughs> <laughs> 
dear listeners, please let us know what you think. Uh, do you agree with Lowen, Conrad, and Ali um, and uh, believe West Wing is the better political drama? Or are you casting a minority report and filing a dissenting opinion in favor of House of Cards? Let us know and let's close up those doors to the infinite crossover chamber. And on to our top five. Conrad, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about top five anti-heroes. And as I indicated in the beginning of the show, this is a very this was a very hard and tough list for me to come up with. Um not because it was too short, but because I think I could come up with so many different anti-heroes that I think are awesome. And then I started thinking that that may not be the best thing to have. As a, <laughs> <laughs> and like the fact that I love them so much. And I was like, yeah, that one's a great one. Um, but it was a fun list to, to, to come up with. And so I cannot wait to hear what Ali tries to, to wrangle into this list <laughs> and argue about. What? Um, so, Citizen Kane. <laughs> look, I, I, um, I had debated whether Citizen or not Kane to put a Citizen Kane showed up on a lot of anti-hero lists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Citizen Kane is actually would belong uh, on the top five list of anti-heroes. It's not on mine. But um, You thought yeah, about it. I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. If you look at a screenshot right now, I've, I've got it listed in my contenders. I uh, could have been a contender. Um, so I had a lot of fun making this list. I want to just get started by asking you all one question. How did you define? an anti-hero I'll take that okay um, so there are a lot of literary and technical de- definitions out there but my personal definition that I worked off of and especially ranking was is this a a character who the the art the rate the writers or whatever don't tip their hand and let you know even though they do bad things from time to time they're still the hero. So that was a requirement for me. That disqualified people like Han Solo and Mal Reynolds from my list. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that they're, they're kind of like rough around the edges, but they're the hero. Yeah. Um, they're and, like the sexy bad boy yeah. anti-hero. They're not really anti-hero. Yeah. And then um, the other requirement was that you root for them, even though they're mm-hmm. doing horrible and awful things, and that viewed from a different perspective of the story, they would be the villain. You're rooting for them. So those were my two requirements. Um, I generally had that requirement. I think I was a little bit, um, a little bit more in the gray area on the definition, though, because I think for me it has to be a character that you root for, even though you feel a little bit bad rooting for them. Um, or sometimes even really bad, and sometimes you're you're talking to yourself and saying, "I can't believe I'm really hoping that they don't get caught, or something bad doesn't happen to them because they are morally just in the wrong all over the place here." Um, so it's a character that I feel somewhat conflicted about because you, it's kind of like you you love them in some ways because they are bad and they're allowed to to use the their sort of uh, gray morals or or techniques or whatever to get what they want, even though you kind of know they shouldn't be doing that. Um, I didn't. I agree with you. I don't think Mal Reynolds and Han Solo belong on this list because they are clearly heroes. Because even though they do have the sort of muddy 
sometimes their motives are a little bit selfish and things like that. But in the end, they do the right thing and you know that they're going to do the right thing. So that kind of confidence you have in them, I can't have that kind of a character on the list. Um, but, you guys are, are really into this definition. Mine was pretty basic and not nuanced. <laughs> really? Really? Uh, Go yeah, for it. They're, they're flawed. They do bad things and I like them. Yeah, nice. Nice. But it's a weird thing, though, because sometimes, especially with certain characters, sometimes you have to really think about it. And it's interesting in your head when you put somebody into this category, a character yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, so anyway. L- Lowen, why don't we have you give us a start here? What is your number five? All right. So my number five is my biggest wild card. Ooh. Um, but it is Solieri from Amadeus. Ooh. Not one I would have expected. <laughs> That's at a really all. good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, kind of went to the AFI list of 100 movies because I thought antiheroes might be prominent characters. And I thought I was going to pick Michael Corleone. But as soon as I saw Amadeus, I was like, no, Salieri's my character. So, um, it, you know, he spends the whole movie trying to undermine. Uh, Mozart, Amadeus Mozart, because he is uh, jealous and envious of his talent. Um, and ultimately, I think why I love Salieri so much is that you realize as the movie goes on, especially at the you know towards the end, that it's not that he hates Mozart; it's that he hates himself, and that motivation is just very sympathetic to me. It just feels like how we all feel on a bad day or how we all feel about our art sometimes. Um, and so to the fact that, uh, and I think F. Murray Abraham, F. Murray Abraham just does an amazing job making him sympathetic while he does horrible things. So that's my number five. Far, um, far more amazing role than his uh, stint in Star Trek Insurrection. Um, (laughs) That's a great pick and a fantastic film. And one of the reasons that film works so well is because of that relationship between the two of them. Uh, Great pick, Lowen. Excellent. Do you want to kick off or do you want me to go? Um, I'll go with mine because I'm afraid one of you is going to have this on your list. Um, And one of the ways I think of antiheroes, you know, one of my uh, one parts of my elaborate definition was um, I like them. And I think about that in terms of they're deliciously evil or they do these things that really put the heroes in a in an uncomfortable place. And it just you're like, ooh, that was cool. Um, it's a lot of those moments. And when I think about that, there's no character that gave me more of those over the past decade than Severus Snape from Harry um, Potter. That is excellent. He was on my honorable mention. Ah, list. I'm surprised he's not on your uh, on your top five, Conrad. Um, I thought about putting him on my top five, but partially I thought you would probably put him on your top five. And, oh, okay. Um, not that I didn't want to have a mind meld, but I, I always thought that there was some undertone of why he was doing what he was doing. And so mm-hmm. ultimately he ends up as a hero in my head. So mm-hmm. I couldn't quite fully put him over into the anti-hero list in my own head anyway. Well, I, I, the the time leading up to Deathly Hallows, I, I think there was a lot of debate, and um, you know, it's uh, I I think he what makes him so redeeming to me is he's he's driven to do 
things that he hates, but it's because of his love. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is really interesting of having to sacrifice a lot of uh, a lot of things because you care for someone who isn't necessarily there anymore. That that's just so interesting. That and um, in the book and in the films, I thought his character was really well portrayed. So uh, deliciously evil. Uh, Severus Snape, Snape is my number five. Conrad, that leaves us with yours. What's your number five pick? Uh, my number five was Nancy Botwin from Weeds. Mm. Because, and this is the character, the main character of the show Weeds, played by Mary Louise Parker, who was also in West Wing, coincidentally. Maybe that's part of why it was leaping into my head, but her character during the series does all these horrific and awful things, and she's super selfish, and yet you still, you you want her to win, and you don't know why you want her to win, and part of it's because she's charming, and she may have some motivations that sometimes seem as if they are good, but ultimately she is not. She is ultimately this very selfish and self-serving character. Um, so, and it's interesting watching the course of the show, how people that are closest to her become very disillusioned with her, but somehow she'll bring them back in to her wicked web. Um, I don't know that I would call her deliciously evil, though some of her actions are horrifically evil. Um, mm. But it it was a very unusual character, and I the show wasn't always my cup of tea, but I was fascinated by it, and it kept me watching for a while anyway. So there she is, my number five, Nancy Botwin. Cool. Um, that's, a, that's a good one. I, Ali, I think you've seen most of Weeds. I have never seen it. I've seen episodes here and there. Yeah, uh, so, I haven't uh, seen it as intensely. Um, I will say I don't think that this show would have worked without Mary Louise Parker playing this, char- playing this character. Mm. It's it's really all about her, and it's as I said, it, it wouldn't normally be my thing, but I did enjoy it, and she is excellent at being bad. Got it. Oh, well, try it out, Conrad. Why don't you take us to our number fours? Uh, so my number four is a more recent antihero um, that I have been watching, and it is Raymond Reddington from Blacklist. I have never seen Blacklist, although it's promoted everywhere at Comic Con. <laughs> it's promoted yes. all the time, and it says I, I Con made it Man. The whole first season, and he is awesome in it. <laughs> he is amazing, and uh, he is, this is the main character from the Blacklist, played by James Spader, who is often a super evil type of character or a weird and bizarre character. Here, he's kind of both. And there is something extraordinarily satisfying about the fact that he he takes vengeance out upon different people, but he absolutely has no moral qualms about killing people. There's no discussing. It's he'll just take out a character, and you're you're clapping, even though some part of you is like that was really messed up. <laughs> so, and I I do think that. There is it, there's a bit of a Snape feeling to his character during the series, and I think Ooh. eventually you're going to find out. And there's a lot of talk, and I don't think that it's the probably the best kept secret on the show why he's acting, behaving the way he is toward one specific character. But I do think that he plays the antihero, and he plays it very well. And as the series series goes on, he really gets. It seems like he's getting into 
Um, he's really getting into the character and he's got it down. So I, I'm enjoying it. It's a little bit one of my popcorn shows that I enjoy, but, but there it is. I've come to know this about you, Conrad. You do enjoy these popcorn shows. <laughs> I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that this is all popcorn, but it is kind of a popcorn show. So The, the thing about The Blacklist that, that I'll say is, because I did watch the whole first season in a very popcorn feeding frenzy, was uh, that <laughs> Spader is amazing in every moment he's on screen he is. and everybody else in the show is like eh. <laughs> <laughs> i would agree with you it gets better but yeah. he's still the main attraction well we've got him to look forward to in avengers age of ultron um yeah. this week's episode of nerd hour is brought to you by marvel studios marvel <laughs> studios making much better movies than warner brothers and dc um my number four is Don Draper from Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Any mind melt? Uh, yes, but mine was number three. Number so. three, yeah, yeah. I, I, Lowen, is Don on yours? Don, I, I, I actually just bumped him to like honorable mention right before Ugh, the show. He, brutal. But, yeah. Sorry. Wow. Um, I think the thing about Don is that I actually spend a, a decent chunk of the show not rooting. For, I actually go a few episodes really not liking him. And so that's, that's why he's four for me. That's why he's yeah. not as high, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but Conrad, you had him as number three. You want to you um, take this lead? I had him as number three. I have to say that I haven't, I have some catching up to do on Mad Men. Um, there's always this feeling with Don Draper that. Part of why I had him on the list and why I had to put him on the list is he does terrible things, always terrible things. Uh, and he does have moments of grace here and there. But there is such a level of hopelessness with that character that you always feel as if at some point he will turn a corner, yet he never does. And that, to me, is really uh, that's the, the part of being the antihero. Um, I, this, I'll admit to you this series, I had to actually stop watching it for a while because I found it so completely depressing and bereft of hope. Um, so maybe (laughs) that would be when the sixties were at their worst. (laughs) I don't, it's so, so, but I do think that he is an artful character. Actually, I did either of you ever see there is somebody described him as a modern day vampire. No, that he no. is the that he is like the um, equivalent of a human vampire, just like in terms of how he sucks all the marrow out of everybody else around him, uses everything. You know, he has no emotions and all this <laughs> other. It, it was a very I will have to find the article somewhere, but it was quite it was very funny. That's funny uh, because I almost put uh, Dracula in my honorable mentions. So. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> Um, so the, the reason why I got Don Draper on my list is I, I think it's a really fascinating arc to this individual, ex- especially against the backdrop of the 60s. This is an individual who, given the context and uh, of, of the late 50s and the early 60s, might not necessarily have been seen as an anti-hero. And the horrible things he does would have been excusable as him just being a man. And that's what people did. But as you see 
the time and the era change, you see this character struggling to deal with these changes, what's happening in society. And then especially as the series gets to its uh, its final run, which is just about to premiere, Don is put in situations where he has to uh, – that he's never faced before and has to sort of redeem himself in some ways. Uh, I think that's a fascinating arc and it, it kind of highlights um, – historical context and how that kind of changes our window into understanding different characters. So, um, really like this character. Plus, man, I want all his suits. John Hamm, gosh, <laughs> that's a sexy man. Um, he's, I will say, um, since we aired our Black episode, ep- uh, Black Mirror episode, I've seen the Christmas special that Don Draper stars in. I'm sorry, not Don Draper, uh, John Hamm stars in. And he's basically playing Don Hamm, Don Hamm. Gosh, you guys, I'm losing it. He basically is playing Don Draper like now. And that <laughs> is really interesting. So um, go check out the Christmas special of Black Mirror. Um, so John, uh, Don Draper is my number four. Lowen. We're back to you. What's your number four? My number four is Rorschach from Watchmen. That's my number one. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, well, I had to have a comic book character in my top five because comic books are full of antiheroes. No way. Yeah, really, Lowen? Tell us more. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. We're on nerd hour. Sorry. Sometimes I talk to normal people on the streets, you guys. So Why would you why would you ever do that, Lowen? What are you doing to yourself out there? Um and when you compare any other comic book character to Rorschach, there's no better anti-hero. So he's my number four. He um you, he is not only does he do horrible things, but he's just disgusting in every single frame. <laughs> he's, he's ugly <laughs> and he's uninspiring. You know, Don Draper, like you said, is like looks great in a suit and lives he's the life vampire. you'd want to live. Yeah, lives the life you'd want to live. <laughs> Same with James Spader in The Blacklist. They're glamorous. You know, everything about Rorschach is repulsive. Oh, he's disgusting. And, and yet, he's the only person you really kind of root for throughout the whole book mm-hmm. oh, that's and true. that's true. um and you know he sort of like has a soul but doesn't and it's just he's a he's an incredibly complex character i think he speaks for all of us even when he says really horrible things um and things that we'd be afraid to say even to ourselves so i, I think he's an amazing I'm not uh, in- stuck in here with you. You're <laughs> stuck in here with me. That's not actually from the graphic novel, Ellie. That was what? that was part of the movie. No. Yeah. I, I think it's sort of said differently. There's yeah. a there's some, phrase. Yeah. yeah. It's not anyway, quite the same. But anyway, it was an excellent your scene. number one, Conrad, so I'm done. Please take well, over. Well, you've summed up pretty much all my feelings about Rorschach or Schnorschnack, <laughs> as I like to call Rorschach. him. That's my that's my you know pet name for him, um, but he is he is very artfully written. He is that that is exactly why I have him as my number one is because during the course of this graphic novel, you're watching him do things and you're and you are rooting for him and then you have to pause and be like, what did I? that's not funny he just dropped some dude down an elevator shaft or you know like he's or he's you know he's saying all these terrible things about humanity and the things that he wants to do to people and um and it's not pleasant and he is disgusting but 
he is he is the person that you kind of want to win or you keep hoping that he gets to do what he wants to do which is really messed up so anyway that i had to put him as number one because i am because i adore him and i feel weird about adoring him so there you go I, I didn't pick rorschach even though i love any character named after a psychological <laughs> personality test um i didn't pick him just because i knew conrad would so uh, there you go so but he was your snape <laughs> he was my snape so we balance each other out and you guys have been doing conrad. this too long you need to have more guests you've been that's doing- true that's true <laughs> this is well, part Lohan, of the look- Lohan, this is part of the fun though we try to almost psych each other out in our that's, top fives Games and have you right? have you been noticing Conrad Lowen keeps dropping hints to get himself back on the show? He's <laughs> truly playing the politics. Here uh, well, we've well. discussed for a long time about having a Weedenverse episode, which I think I think Lowen should be on. That would be that, fun. That would be that would be fun. Uh, but before we get to that, we have to get to my number three, which ties into comic books. It is Catwoman, the antihero from Batman. Honorable mention for me. Really? Honorable mention See, for me. What? <laughs> so, I love Catwoman. Um, not Clearly. Just, well, <laughs> not just because of Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman Returns, um, but that does help. Meow. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Um, yo. So, uh, I really liked the Catwoman dynamic in Batman the Animated Series. And we've we've sang the praises of that show many times on uh, Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. But I, I think what what's so interesting to me about Catwoman is um, how she does have all this independent agency. She's doing her own thing. And yet she and Batman have this weird, interesting relationship with each other where they do seem to have this understanding of each other, respect for one another, even though she symbolizes many of these things that Batman um, is seemingly against. You know, Batman is for justice and Catwoman often breaks the law, but she's sort of the not really the worst criminal out there. Um and so they've, they've developed this relationship, and I, I think we, we understand each of them better through this relationship with each other. Um, and she's also really a lot of fun to play with, as in uh, Batman Arkham Asylum, uh, or Arkham City, I should say. So that's pretty cool, too. So um, I'm a big Catwoman fan. I'm not right. going to say what I was about to say. <laughs> no, go for it. Go, no, go no, on, no, right? no, yeah. no, no. This is a If you family. don't say it, one of our listeners is going to. Well, they'll say I'd it rather the, it come from you. They'll say it in their heads. It's okay. Um, but look, moving on. All right. All right. Um, uh, Conrad, what's yours? What's your number three? Um, my number three was Don Draper. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's right. Remember. So, Lowen, we're back to you. My number three is Tony Soprano. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had him well, listed, but I didn't have him on my list because I didn't really. I watched a little bit of The Sopranos, but not yeah. enough to put him on my list. Okay, well, I've seen about four seasons, so I haven't seen it all, but I've seen enough to to say that the thing about Tony Soprano is just that he, you know, like James Spader, he oozes charisma. You really want to root for him while he's doing horrible things, and um. He, so, uh, so many things about the mafia have these <laughs> aspects. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, so, so many sorry. portrayals, that is, rather. 
That's true. Yeah, like Michael Corleone. Um, the other thing, the other reason I thought Tony had to be on my top five is because he kind of launched the whole serious, serialized drama sur- about an anti-hero protagonist trend with The Sopranos. Yeah, so Breaking um, Bad it, followed. Like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Dexter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, And I would argue that uh, The Sopranos sort of launched the quote-unquote golden age of the TV drama that we have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why he's my number three. Good choice. Yeah. Yeah, had to be there. Um, um, I actually, when I first started watching Sopranos, I actually thought a lot of Goodfellas, which Henry Hill is such a good anti-hero. Mm-hmm. But I feel like James Gandolfini has so much more charisma than that particular character. Yeah. Um, and if you ever heard, did you ever see James Gandolfini talking about Tony Soprano as I got further on into the show? No, I don't think so. And how he found it very challenging to be playing this character um, and felt like he was taking on too many attributes of the character. Oh, wow. Because it was just such an intense and dark character to play, and it became so much part of his life for years. Um, and, you know, it, it's just kind of... You should check out a couple of those interviews. It's it's really interesting. Okay. So, anyway, good choice, Lowen. Well, okay, let me let me take number two here, and maybe I can redeem myself I, uh, for, for some reason. My Catwoman pick uh, just got crickets from you <laughs> it's guys. It's just the femme fatale aspect, that's all. It's the... it. I don't know. That's all, right? <laughs> <laughs> what, go, go, Ali. What's your number two? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll love you. Um, my number two is Q from Star Trek uh, The Next oh, Generation. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, boom, and I'm back in the game here, <laughs> redeemed. Um, so Q is, we understand Picard and humanity based on the counterpoint of Picard versus Q. And we see this from the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation Encounter at Farpoint, and we see it in the, all the way through the series to the last episode, All Good Things, which wraps everything up and is the best se- series finale uh, until we got to uh, the 2010s where we've had a lot of really good season series finales. But um, what I like about this character is he's so funny. You, you're rooting for him in a weird way, even though he's he, he's just running amok in this federation and on this like very states statemently, uh, very professional USS Enterprise. And he's he's just with the snap of his fingers uh, doing all these crazy kooky things. Um, and there's so many great lines that come um, from those Q episodes. One of my favorites is where they're they're sent. Q sends them all back to kind of Robin Hood, England. Um who, which for some reason many characters like know of Robin Hood because of course you would in the 24th century know about this this uh, this story. But anyways, uh, Worf is kind of like looking at himself and he's dressed in the period clothing and he's like, I protest, I am not a merry man. And there's just so many great funny moments. So you have the humor, you're rooting for them, rooting for him. Every time there is a Q episode, you kind of, the smile comes on your face because you just know you're in for a good time and there's uh, you understand Picard and humanity better because of that counterpoint so I love Q um, 
I will say diminishing returns on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and then on Star Trek Voyager. But at least on Next Generation, the Q episodes were golden. Cool. Yes, very good pick. All right. Um, My number two was Beatrix Kiddo from the Kill Bill series. I knew this was going to be here, Conrad. I was waiting for it. (laughs) I know. I know. But I had to do it. And, you know, this is the thing. While you're watching these films, you realize that you're rooting for somebody who has assassinated many people. um, And she assassinates many, many more to get her way. To get custody of her child because, you know, it's a good place for a child to be with a trained assassin. (laughs) With her mom trained assassin instead of her dad trained assassin. And yet, even though she, you know, she she does, she gets beaten and she gets left for dead by Bill and by by his, um, his team of deadly female assassins. You're still rooting for her, even though they've done, they're all doing the same bad things, but yet you're rooting for her. And so she is my number two anti-hero. I also felt like there was a dearth of women on these lists, so I felt like I needed to to throw her in there, even though she definitely belongs there. So it's not like I'm just giving it to her, but there you have it. Yeah, she's not on my list for the same reason I, I knew she was going to be here. And we've both talked about our love of Kill Bill and how much you all really love this film, uh, the two films. So I, I'm supportive of that. Cool. Lone, what do you got for number two? My number two is Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment. Ooh, nice. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but do you really like him? Uh, I feel like you're rooting for him. Mm. Yeah, I feel like you want him to escape. You know, you want him to evade the law. Um, there, there is sort of there were like there was a lot of French, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, like kind of you know like Russian and French uh, novels that were kind of like this that that made a lot of lists. And Raskolnikov stuck with me for a very long time. You know, like um, the Stranger. Uh, by Camus, it starts off with the protagonist, the first pers- first person perspective protagonist, committing this violent act, and then spending the rest of the novel sort of not really ever reflecting about that. But and so it, it's just very um, I don't know. There's something about it that that I really appreciate and has stuck with me since high school. So I thought he had to be on there. All right, good choice. Oh, good choice. So, Conrad, we know your number one is Rorschach yes. from Watchmen. Uh, Lowen, you're going to have the last say here on this episode of Nerd Hour. My number one pick uh, is Walter White. Also, I knew that Heisenberg. was going to be your. I knew it. Yeah, you knew Mind it. Mouth. Yes. Yeah. Mind mouth. Walter White, number one. Wow. Um. See, I don't like him, so I couldn't put him on my list. (laughs) And I knew, Conrad, we've had that. We've talked about Breaking Bad in the past. Um, I I just, uh, okay, I'll say a couple things, and Lowen, I'm going to turn it over to you. What I think is so amazing about Breaking Bad is you do see this slow descent from a hero into an anti-hero. And that, over the several seasons, is so interesting because you're rooting for this guy, and then you you're like, oh wow, that that wasn't good. He sh- he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> okay, no, no, maybe I, I mean I understand why he's trying to help his family, and 
oh, well, okay, well, those are just the circumstances. Okay, that's that's just why he did that. And then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, get him, get him. Oh, oh, wait, oh, 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 my. And there's a point in the show where you, you realize he's become the villain. And that is what's so fascinating and interesting is is following that descent. So that's, that's why he had to be my number one pick. Uh, Lowen, why is he yours? Well, I, I know that aspect. I think Vince Gillen, the creator, has said something like he, his goal was to take this guy from Mr. Chips to, like, I don't know, Doc, Mr. Hyde or whatever, you know, or something. <laughs> um, so I, I know that long arc over the series is something a lot of people comment on. I actually have to confess that Walter White's my number one, even without having finished Breaking Bad. What? Yeah. What's uh, wrong with the two of you not finishing stuff? Uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I haven't given There's up. There's too much stuff, Ali. Then you have to pick and choose. You have to pick and choose. The thing I really... Uh, why... Walter White really resonates with me and why I like him so much is that um, it's not the long arced transformation over the series. It's something that hap- that almost they come back to in almost every single episode, which is that you discover that he actually enjoys it, you know, that he, uh. he actually likes being bad and he um, being he's so emasculated in his daily life and he's such a schlub and he's not, you know, the king of the castle at home, and he's not Don Draper, but in when he's a, a, a meth lord, uh, a drug lord and a meth dealer and everything, he is a badass, and people fear him, and he can be angry, and he can, uh, it's like a, you know, it's sort of like a Bruce Banner Hulk, you know, Je- Jekyll mm-hmm. and Mr. Hyde thing. It, it really is giving birth to his id. I remember talking to a client and I was walking down Market Street in San Francisco with a client. She said, frustrated, my husband has just been in a horrible mood and I just don't think men deal with stress well. And I was like, well, I don't, we deal with stress differently than women. And she said, no, don't, men don't deal with stress well at all. And I was like, well, have you seen Breaking Bad? And she said, no, why? I was like, because that's about how men deal with stress. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's like this bottling up response and then there's this unleashing response. And, and I think that he's just so good at making you feel that pleasure at at being angry. And well, so you know what... how freaked out she's going to be now. now <laughs> this is what men are like. Oh my God. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like uh, house of cards, a dramatization thereof, but yeah. Well, and, and though you haven't finished the series, what I was alluding to earlier with Q being in, in all good things and saying it's the best finale uh, up until the two thousands is because I think breaking bad is such a complete story that is satisfying from beginning to end. One of the one of the most satisfying finales that I've seen. Um, and so then it ties it, into Walking Dead. <laughs> and then it. Oh well, yeah. There's the blue. Uh, yeah. Well, and Glenn. Yeah. There's there's the that theory. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Listen to the Walking Dead episode of Super Fantastic Nerd Hour for more on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Yes, that is a very cool thing. And and now we've got Better Call Saul, which uh, apparently people like. I, I've got it DVR'd. I haven't seen it yet, but it's it's had good reviews. It's getting so, really good reviews. Yeah. Um, you guys want to do some rapid fire uh, honorable mentions? I do. I only have one. Okay, um, what's yours? 
Oscar the Grouch. Nice. <laughs> um, I had Snape. I also had John Constantine and Wolverine from comic book fame. Um, uh-huh. And I also had Irene Adler from BBC Sherlock. Nice. See, I, I don't think I don't think Wolverine's a real anti-hero. Yeah, he is. What? You, you don't know enough about Wolverine to know what you're talking about. So I took Wolverine off my list because I have actually never read a, no- a graphic novel or a comic book where he does something really horrible. So uh, he my does, brother, he my does brother horrible has, th- and my brother's told me that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does some horrible things. I mean, not all the time, but he definitely does. And it's not, but that's why he wasn't on my 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 top five is because I think he does generally the good he does outweighs it. Yeah. Um, I also had in in the vein of Sherlock, uh, Greg Gregory House from House. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Elizabeth Jennings from The Americans. So, All right. good um, And I could have probably put quite a few on here from um, the Game of Thrones novels and series, but yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say Tyr- Tyrion strikes me as one, and probably Arya are probably the two that uh, see, they're sneaky. Uh, they're sneaky antiheroes, but uh, they're not. They're so sneaky, I don't think they're antiheroes. <laughs> but again, why they can't be on my list? But they yeah, do enough okay. bad things that, mm, and it remains to be seen. I think Arya is going more down the Walter White path at this point, but we'll see. Lowen, you have any honorable mentions for us? I have, I have a few, but I'll go rapid fire. Uh, oh, wait, my... I forgot when I was going. Sorry, my favorite one, Spike from Buffy. But again, he does enough good that it outweighs the bad. Sorry. Keep going. Oh, Conrad, <laughs> you and your sneaky ones. Um, Lowen, what do you got for us? Um, I've already mentioned a few. Michael Corleone uh, from The Godfather, Don Draper, Catwoman. Uh, Mavis from Young Adult. Uh, I, I thought she... Yeah, it's sort oh, of a, sort of a dark comedy that came out maybe about four years ago. Three yeah, years. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, know, I don't think I ever saw it, but I heard good things about it. Yeah, Charlize Theron plays the main character against Patton Oswalt, and she's definitely a very bad person. Um, but and her you, name's you, Mavis. Name? <laughs> yeah. um, very satisfying movie. Check it out. Uh, Alexander Portnoy from Portnoy's Complaint. Um, again, a really good expression of the male id. Uh, Punisher. Jay Gatsby. Yeah, the Punisher. Mm. Yeah, Gatsby, yeah. Um, Spawn, also from comics Ooh, fame. Ooh, yeah. Amazing Amy from Gone Girl. And mm. Bonnie, and, Bonnie yeah. and Clyde. Oh, mm. oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Gone Girl. I could talk to you guys about that film. I just <laughs> recently watched it. I, I need to debrief with someone on Did that. Did you read the book? I did not read the contract. Oh. <laughs> you even bother asking I was me these being, questions? I was being sarcastic. Oh, you, you two together. Exactly. Um, we'll, double, we'll, uh, we'll team up on you. Well, and if you would like to contact these people who have been picking on me this whole episode, uh, Lowen, how can people reach out to you and, and, and talk policy and, and wonk out? Yeah. Or I talk to people on the street sometimes, too. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, what is your home address? Where can you I'm at Lowen on Twitter. Just L-O-W-E-N, my name. And uh, you can find me on the internet uh, at LowenBaumgarten.com. I'm so jealous of you and Nguyen, my partner, because your guys' Twitter handles are your first names. Like, 
I, yeah, you know so. how much I would love to have at Ali. That would be awesome. That I think seems probably, a little bit unlikely, don't you think, Ali? I, I missed the boat on that one. <laughs> we both have unusual names, and we both signed up. We were both in marketing jobs, and we're told by our bosses to sign up early in the when Twitter first launched. I think well, that, that was smart. Yeah. yeah. Um, Conrad, where can people reach you on the internet this week? On the internet this week, uh, on the Undead podcast, Reanimated, with my friend and co-host Stuart Tiffin, reanimatedpcast.com, sorry, reanimatedpcast on Twitter, reanimatedpodcast.com. <laughs> hey, it's late, and I'm tired. Uh, and on the Twitters, I'm at Prince. And I am at Ali Matu on Twitter. You can also find me on BrainKnowsBetter.com, where in a very short amount of time I'll have a great uh, Black Mirror uh, post up. And I am also the host of the Shike the, the Show. Yes, 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 Ali, that's what it is. Conrad, you're rubbing off on me. I'm host of the Shike Show on YouTube. Go <laughs> Wait, check that out. Wait, what did you just call it? The Shike Show? The, the Shike Show. <laughs> I think that should be a spinoff, sort of like Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um and uh, folks, we'll be back for another super fantastic Nerd Hour episode next week. Lowen Baumgarten, thank you so much for finally jo- joining in on the show. It took us 60 episodes, but that was a very nerdy episode. We yeah. really loved having you on. Well, we had to warm up to get Lowen on the show. You know, we had to be perfect our episodes Ali. Like about 54 episodes before i the level the quality of the show reached my standards exactly exactly but no in all seriousness it was so much fun having you on the show lowen so come back again i hope thank you guys very much for having me i, I hope to too just don't throw me under a train in the middle of the second season so. <laughs> well we can't do that because if we did you wouldn't live long and prosper oh thank you indeed yeah. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I rescind it? my invitation. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say it to end it. Indeed. There you go. <laughs>